Welcome to GLF Live, a podcast from the Global Landscapes Forum. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of climate change solutions? Renewable energy? Tree planting? Land restoration? Or perhaps carbon capture and storage? It may surprise you, but one of the most effective solutions lies just beneath our feet. That's right, soil. These tiny particles in the ground actually hold more carbon than the atmosphere and all of the plants in the world combined. What's more, scientists say it could store even more carbon if we can find a way to make agriculture more sustainable. That's the topic of today's episode, where we'll be joined by one of the world's leading soil scientists. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Today we're discussing soil with probably the most important living soil scientist, Dr. Ratan Lal. And I'm going to start by introducing him a bit because he really is a living legend. And I think to understand the importance of what he's going to say in this conversation also requires taking into account his incredible life story. So Dr. Lal just briefly was born in 1944 in West Punjab, India. And a few years later, when India gained its independence, his family moved to Pakistan as refugees, where his father worked as a farmer and Dr. Lal helped raise the cattle. And this is where his fascination with soil really began. And then he went on to study agriculture. He ran four miles to and from his college every day where he graduated at the top of his class. He ultimately went on to earn his PhD in the US from Ohio State University in a time when studying abroad like that really wasn't even commonplace. He then went on to do his postdoc in Australia and then he began building his career as a soil physicist at the International Institute of Tropical Agriculture. And over the course of his career, he's worked in over 100 countries around the world. He's published incredibly widely. Um, and now he's back at his alma mater at Ohio State University as a distinguished university professor of soil scientist. And he holds a number of accolades, the most notable of which is the 2020 World Food Prize, which was awarded to him for his research for helping improve um, the lives of over 500 million smallholder holder farmers. So these are just a few of the things that Dr. Law has accomplished over the course of his life. And it is such a privilege to have you here in this discussion today. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us from your professorship in Ohio. Thank you for having me on your program. <laughs> of course, it is such a pleasure. Um, so I want to start by asking a question about one of the things I mentioned last, which is you won the World Food Prize in 2020. And when you were awarded this really prestigious prize, one of your messages was that soil is a living thing and therefore soil has rights. And so I was wondering if you could tell us more about the rights that soil should have. Well, let's first talk about soil is a living thing. Soil is a habitat home for about 25% of all terrestrial biodiversity. So a spoonful of good soil has millions of organisms. So in that context, soil is a living entity because it's full of life. The other reason it's living entity is because soil is the only site in the universe at the root here, soil interface at a nanoscale where the dead matter or the death is resurrected into life. So in other words, you can say soil has the divine power to convert death into life. And so therefore this life-giving 
properties of the soil um, must be given the proper protection so that life can flourish, thrive, and also at the same time restore the environment. And I think one other part uh, to make this part complete is that uh, uh, the One Health concept, uh, which also states that the health of soil, plants, animal, people, ecosystem, and the planet is one and indivisible. Therefore, if the health of soil goes down, the health of everything else goes down with it. And that brings up the idea that soil as a living entity must be protected, restored, so it can thrive and flourish. Thank you so much. And thanks for connecting that to the One Health concept, which has grown in awareness over the course of the pandemic and this notion that all life on Earth is heavily interlinked, heavily dependent. And yeah, there's just so much truth in the fact that if the soil beneath our feet isn't healthy, nothing else is going to be healthy either. Um, when you were a child, and I mentioned this briefly in the introduction, but you were uh, working on your family's plot of land, what did you learn in this time working with your family, having your hands in the dirt um, that you've carried forward and that has informed the rest of your career? Oh, thank you. I was really privileged, very fortunate to have grown up on a small farm. And the small landholder, whether they are two acres, five acres, 10 acres, 500 plus million of them from around the world, uh, they really represent a very large segment of agricultural society uh, that supports uh, billions of uh, people around the world. So it's a very important uh, profession indeed. And one thing I realized uh, growing up on a small farm in uh, Northwestern India at that time uh, was that the ability of the soil to produce uh, a minimum agricultural productivity so that family can survive during the worst possible years, monsoon failure, for example, is the most critical part in terms of the decision making and in terms of the ability of the farmers to survive in those environments. So in a good season, yes, soil always produces more and everything is fine, but can soil produce minimum required food to maintain a family in a worst year uh, is a very good thing to think about. Therefore, uh, improving, restoring, managing, sustaining the health of soil so that it can produce healthy food uh, is very critical, especially for small landholders. That's such an important message, especially right now as worst years are going to be coming more frequently in a changing climate and uh, soil is going to be one of the best tools to survive through that and adapt to that that smallholders have. Um, and hopefully we can circle back to this more and dig into that more later in the conversation. Um, but something that I thought was really interesting when I was digging into your research and learning about the time in which you were conducting your research was that in the 1970s, when you were um, really starting your career in this field, soil health and the concept that healthy soil is the basis for everything else, as you've mentioned before, um, that concept wasn't so widespread. Why was soil so overlooked in this time? 
but the concept uh, healthy soil uh, is on which everything depends is as old as the uh, our culture uh, humanity our uh, our civilization because it doesn't matter which scripture you pick up whether it's a bible or whether it's a, a hebrew books or whether it's a islam or a hinduism or vedas uh, they all indicate the importance of soil in fact uh, that is one thing in common i think what has happened to humanity forgot its roots and also the fact that uh, during 60s fertilizers and pesticides and herbicides and the energy uh, to plow the land and irrigation water to irrigate dry land became rather easily available so that the basic concept of soil as a living entity and as a life support system forgot and we began to trade uh, management uh, sustainability issues with chemicals and energy and i think that link has to be reestablished it's not that the link was never known of course it's a basis of our civilization and we also know that those civilization which are once uh, thriving and uh, but have gone extinct whether it was mayan aztec uh, incas mesopotamian indus and you name it because they took their soil for granted we don't want to do that we want to make sure that our soil resources are always restored improved and protected and we shouldn't forget it thank you as an important call to not repeat the mistakes of our past and it's really interesting what you're mentioning about these ancient cultures i'm not sure if that notion um that uh soil health wasn't maintained in those cultures i'm not sure if that's something that we think about or are so aware of while we should be learning from that history and we should be making adjustments to our actions based on some of the shortcomings of the past um, that's a really really interesting point another thing that you've um, been quoted on is that you've called the way we produce food now a wasteful extravaganza and yet we have so many people hungry, starving, malnourished in the world, and yet we have an extravaganza of waste. Could you explain this a bit more and why you call it that? Oh, thank you. This is a very good point indeed. Uh, since the Green Revolution, and I must uh, salute uh, the fathers of Green Revolution, uh, Dr. Norman Borlaug, Dr. Swaminathan, and many, many others from throughout the world. Uh, between 1960 and now, uh, the food production went up from about 0.9 billion ton to more than 3 billion tons of cereal grain production. <clears throat> and uh, while the population went uh, up also, but the rate of food production was much greater. Therefore, the per capita food grain production indeed over that period of time went up more than 30%. But that miracle also happened because we uh, added uh, 10 times more nitrogen five times more fertilizer, phosphorus, potassium, and water, and pesticide, uh, and irrigation water, and the energy consumption. Uh, while the food became abundant, we probably forgot that it should not be taken for granted. Consequently, as much as 30 to 40% of all grains produced, maybe as much as 1.2 billion tons out of three plus billion tons grain produced are wasted. They do not reach any stomach, human or animal. 
and waste of food also, of course, has adverse effect on the land on which was it produced and the resources, precious water, the other inputs that have gone into it. So in other words, it is a crime against nature. It's also a crime against humanity because almost uh, 600 million people before pandemic and almost now reaching 750 or 800 million because of the pandemic and disruption by war are undernourished and more than 2 billion are malnourished. So in spite of the plenty, we have food which is not available. The safe, healthy, and nutritious food is not accessible to 3 billion people. And this dilemma must be addressed. We should not have the idea of produce more and more and waste more and more and a throwaway culture. Uh, that is not acceptable. In fact, while we are talking about it, I'd like to mention 5 billion hectare of land under agriculture. We don't need that much land. In fact, we already produce more than enough for 10 billion people if we manage the food properly and we focus on plant-based diet as much as possible and reduce the wastage, we should be able to return at least half the land back to nature by 2100. Those are some really yeah. staggering figures. Um, just thinking about the fact that 3 billion people, which is almost half of the world's population, doesn't have access to food that exists is quite staggering. Um, and something that, yeah, in the climate talks and the negotiations just has to be addressed more, um, yeah, more pointedly. You have traveled around the world in your research to over 100 countries working with farmers directly on their land with their soils. Um, as we're thinking about these big numbers and putting them into context and bringing them down to that land landscape level, what are some of the challenges that you witnessed, that you heard, that perhaps feed back up into these big numbers that you've just mentioned? Well, uh, we have certainly made a tremendous progress in our ability to produce food. Uh, I think one part I also mentioned 3 billion people not having access to safe, healthy, and nutritious food. And food nutritious part is which bring us to nutrition-sensitive agriculture. For example, it's not a, simply enough to produce enough. It's, food should be nutrient-rich, nutrient-dense. Uh, we got protein, we got 17 micronutrients, uh, which are all very essential in developing countries, uh, nursing mother and children under five, uh, have serious problem of micronutrient deficiency, protein deficiency, iron deficiency, uh, leading to anemic uh, and other issues uh, health-related. Somewhere the food, good food, is a good medicine. That concept uh, is also very important to realize. And good healthy food come from good healthy soil. Uh, and that link between healthy soil and healthy food and healthy plant. But we talk about uh, the One Health concept uh, really needs more emphasis now than ever before. One other part which I should mention is the disruption, unfortunate disruption caused by the war in uh, Eastern Europe. 
which brings us back to strengthening, improving the local food sources. And that local food source, I mean, each home uh, should have a small garden uh, where food wasted, uh, kitchen waste is recycled as a compost and everybody grows a few tomatoes and queenie and beans and uh, uh, other things fresh produce so that the dependence on long distance food export and disruption, their impact becomes less. Community garden, urban agriculture, those uh, become, I think mega cities which have more than 10 million people, we should have goal to produce 15, 20, 25% of the fresh produce within the city limits. So it doesn't have to be brought in from outside. That will make uh, a strong link between human and the soil from where the food comes from. And at the same time, uh, address some of the food insecurity issue which the world is facing. Thanks. And thanks for making that more action oriented as well. Um, something that listeners can think about and take home how to how to plant their make space around their homes to grow their own food how to engage in community gardens in the soil that is around them and supporting them um, and the term nutrition sensitive agriculture i've heard before but not enough and i hope that's a term that uh, can be more widely spread um, before we move on, I'll take a moment to say to all of our listeners, whatever platform you're listening on, we'll have a few minutes at the end for audience questions. So if you want to ask Dr. Lal anything, please drop it in the chat of the platform you're listening on, and we will field those questions at the end. Um, but the next question from my side, uh, kind of linking off your last one, which is how people can get involved in food production in their own home areas. What are some of the most efficient and universal ways people can engage with the soil itself to improve soil health? Very important point. I think uh, linking people with the uh, land, with soil is, uh, uh, we forgot the relationship. And I have been hoping, suggesting, recommending that our curricula right from kindergarten, primary school, uh, should be environment oriented. Children should know where the food comes from. They should know what a healthy soil looks like, feels like, smells like. Uh, so our curricula should be oriented toward uh, that part. You remember the uh, book which was very popular called The Little Prince? It has been translated into 350 plus more languages. We need something very similar to that, which links our children, next generation, uh, very young children, back to nature, back to soil, so that they know where the food comes from and what a healthy soil, what a healthy environment looks like. That is very critical. And that brings me to this another important part, respectability of the agriculture profession itself. Uh, in many cultures, especially in developing countries, uh, every parent would think, I wish my child would be a doctor, engineer, IT specialist, uh, a computer or bank finance manager. Uh, if they cannot get admission anywhere else, only then they think, okay, all right, uh, go ahead and do the agriculture. We must attract the best and the brightest to something which is the heart of our civilization, the food and the environment. 
how can we give it uh, a very least uh, priority in our culture, in our civilization? That must change our thinking toward environment, the source of food, source of health, source of everything. Uh, we must give it the respect it deserves. And it really goes back to mindset changes, uh, bringing about the importance of nature and environment, connecting people with nature. That's the important part. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so few children probably have the childhood that you had um, nowadays. And I love the idea of creating educational awareness from a young age about what this looks like and the importance of it and implanting these ideas um, from the start so people can think about this and carry it forward. And I know there are some movements happening to bring young people back into agriculture because there is this growing awareness of the mass exodus from the field um, into urban areas and whatnot. Uh, but it will be interesting to see if that gains momentum and if the right incentives are put in place to draw young, brilliant people back into farming and back into agriculture, because that's so needed to transform the system in the ways that you've mentioned. Um, pivoting slightly, in the climate space, we talk a lot about increased private sector engagement and how do we engage business? How do we engage companies? They're such a mobilizer of finance, of resources, of capacity building. Um, what do you see as the private sector's role in improving soil health? And do any specific examples of companies or food producers come to mind um, that are doing this well? Uh, absolutely, very important part. Translating knowledge that already exists, science into action, uh, private sector can play a very important role. And I'd like to give a few examples. Uh, one example would be climate change adaptation mitigation. Uh, we always think about uh, geoengineering, injecting carbon dioxide from the chimney of a power plant uh, into ground strata, probably a mile or two mile deep. Uh, burying the carbon into the ocean and so forth. But we also forget that soil is the largest trusted reservoir of carbon. The carbon stock in soil of the world to one meter depth uh, is uh, organic carbon is 1500 plus gigaton. And to one meter depth, inorganic carbon in other somewhere 750 to 900 gigaton. So to one meter depth, soils of the world contain about 2,300 to 2,400 gigaton of carbon. Compare that, for example, what is in the all woody biomass, trees, uh, woodland, forest, uh, uh, grasses, everything, 620 gigaton. So soils contain about four times more carbon than the vegetation and about three times more than what is in the atmosphere at present. Therefore, uh, if the soil can be a sink of atmospheric carbon dioxide, which soil and vegetation has lost since the beginning of agriculture, and sometimes the estimate is about 130 gigaton lost from the soil, another 400 or 400 plus gigaton from the vegetation. If that out of 500 or 600 gigaton we have lost over last uh, 10,000 years, if we can put it back through cooperation with the private sector, that will certainly help in mitigation and adaptation of climate change. A private sector can help with farmers 
translate science into action, make uh, some of the technology available, uh, drip fertigation, for example, uh, improved varieties, improved uh, seed, uh, value addition, improving the shelf life of the food so it doesn't get wasted immediately, uh, bringing the new ideas back to the farmer who do not have access, providing education opportunity. I think the cooperation between private sector, academician, policymaker, and land managers is very critical. And private sector can play a very positive role. And uh, I do not want to give any specific example, but some private company, for example, has started compensating farmer for sequestering carbon. Uh, certain amount like $6 uh, or so a credit of carbon uh, or on an area basis, maybe $6, $8, uh, et cetera, per year, per acre. I think while I salute private companies for doing that, my only plea, my only request is do not undervalue a very precious resource. Undervaluing a very precious resource such as carbon can lead to the tragedy of the common. Furthermore, farmers should be rewarded fairly, justly, transparently, and what they deserve so that they can help us reverse the environmental problem. They can help us make agriculture a solution to the environmental issue. They can help us restore soil health on which the health of everything has depend. In this regard, farmers should be paid fairly, justly, uh, adequately, properly, and transparently. And whatever we owe them, uh, we should pay them, society should, so they can help us make agriculture solution to address the environmental issues. Thank you so much for that really broad answer. And something that just came to mind at the end there when you're talking about paying farmers fairly it rang a bell with another term that I've heard you use a few times throughout this conversation, which is that taking things for granted, we often take soil and soil health so for granted. And we also shouldn't take the people that take care of the soil that are working with the soil. We shouldn't take them and their incomes for granted. Um, that's such an important point. And um, it was nice to hear some more specific ways that the private sector can engage through some of the technologies you mentioned. And I'll have a question about that in a minute, but we, um, I'll start weaving in some audience questions because I know we've already been talking for a while, just you and I. And so we have one question coming in um, asking about policy, and I think this is a good time to ask it. So we've touched on the private sector already, um, but this listener is asking, how can we integrate such a complex and overarching concept of soil health into policy? What are some specific measures? Thank you. Very, very good point indeed. Uh, FAO, Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations based in Rome, uh, had since 60s a world soil charter or something of that nature. Uh, some countries also have those policies, but translating them into action has not uh, really have been as important as drafting some of those things. Let me give you a specific example. In the US, uh, we have since 67 and 72 uh, Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act. How is it possible to have clean air and water if we don't have a healthy soil? We need a healthy soil act. And I think this is, uh, if the US were to do this and they were to 
adopt this so that farmers uh, can be rewarded for maintaining soil health as we are talking uh, through the private sector, but also through policies as a uh, farm bill perhaps, where farmers are given uh, resources to maintain soil health. I have heard uh, Secretary Wilsack talk that as many as 90% of the farmers in the US have to work off farm to make ends meet. Uh, therefore, his goal was to help them financially. One way to help them would be pay them for ecosystem services, climate change adaptation mitigation, water quality and renewability, improving biodiversity, improving a static value of the land, uh, all those aspects. And if the farmers are rewarded through the policy, that would be a very important uh, step forward. And that goes back to the original question you had, is soil a living entity? And should we have a policy to protect a living entity like we protect bald eagle or butterfly or panda or whatever else? And I think it is part of the same thing. Translating science into action through policy is very, very critical. Uh, just like private sector can help, the policymaker can help. And one more thing, I salute our policymaker when they go to the climate summit, uh, which is coming up in Egypt uh, by the end of this year. Uh, yes, slogan there, we will do it, is important. When you come back home, please, sir, please, ma'am, also follow through and translate into action. Don't forget it. That's an important message, especially with the start of your answer to this question about policy, which is that we have things like the World Soil Charter, but sometimes they aren't always followed up upon. Um, I think your point about these acts about clean air, clean water, and leaving soil out of these um, just frankly doesn't make sense. Um, so having having these policies that give better paychecks to farmers so they don't have to work off their lands as well, um, translating the science, protecting the soil, um, just really important points throughout that answer. Uh, so I'll circle back to something that you touched upon um, two questions ago, but I'd like to dig into it a little bit more because I know that you've been working um, on some projects that heavily speak to this, which is technology and how, the role that technology is playing uh, in the way that we engage with soil, how we can monitor it, how we can improve its health, how farmers can learn about the health of their own soil. Um, so you spoke a bit about technologies like drip irrigation, improved seed varieties, improved shelf life mechanisms. Um, but could you speak about some other uh, technologies that are happening that are really changing our relationship with soil? Thank you. Yes. Uh, we have, uh, in terms of agriculture, I think technologically, more changes are expected between now and 2050, say with the next 25, 30 years then really have happened since the beginning of agriculture 10,000 years ago. And the technology I'm talking about are something like precision agriculture, the digital agriculture, robotic agriculture, urban agriculture, soil-less agriculture. Uh, soil is such a precious finite resource. Can we grow food without soil? So aquaculture, aeroponic, hydroponics, uh, things of this nature, space agriculture. Uh, you know, we are thinking hopefully soon um, 
community will be established on Mars or Moon, uh, we must know how to grow food and the gravity situation, which is no gravity or low gravity, hypergravity condition. So all those things which are uh, very, very critical. We should be able to communicate with plants somehow. You know, I, I know GMO are not very popular word, but I do not know, I'm not a plant breeder, but imagine we have a large field of wheat uh, in the Midwest or corn or soybean or whatever. And if we had sentinel plants in them, which when exposed to abiotic or biotic stress, they emit molecular-based signal that we can detect remotely and intervene before major problem happens, uh, that would be something very, very critical. Use efficiency of input of irrigation, fertilizer, chemical is very low. Irrigation, flood irrigation or sprinkler, maybe 30%. Nitrogen use also maybe 30% in uh, many countries overseas. How to improve the use efficiency of input so we can produce more from less? That's really the idea, produce more from less, uh, rather than 200 million tons of fertilizer and 3,150 kilometer cube of water used for irrigation. If we improve the efficiency, we can save all that uh, for nature. But one thing I mentioned uh, very uh, casually is, uh, you know, Mahatma Gandhi used to list seven sins of humanity, uh, wealth without work and all those kind of things. Uh, politics without principle, commerce without morality, and so forth. I like to add to that list, technology without wisdom. Every technology must be used very, very carefully, very, very prudently. Technology does not say excessive plowing. Technology does not say indiscriminate use of pesticides and chemicals. Technology does not say uh, removal of biodiversity by inappropriate land use. That is what I come to call technology without wisdom. Use science judiciously and prudently and properly to address, make science and nature work together for the planet and for humanity. What wise words, um, the prudent use of technology in a time when technology seems to be running rampant through all of our lives. Um, that is a take-home message, if nothing else. Um, so we're almost out of time. I'll uh, put two more questions to you. Uh, one piggybacks off the former audience question that we had, um, and it's asking what sorts of global agreements on soil policy at the global level, what do we need there? We certainly need a policy which protect uh, soil resources of the one third of the world's soils, uh, managed soils and other soils are degraded to some extent. Uh, 24 billion tons of sediments of topsoil going into the ocean by erosion. Uh, if you consider the sediment trap behind the dam, that 24 billion ton number actually goes to beyond 36 billion tons. Uh, soils are right now major source of greenhouse gases, uh, not only just CO2, carbon dioxide, but nitrous oxide and methane uh, as well. So I think globally, if we protect soil, uh, protect natural vegetation, tropical rainforest, savannas, uh, as much as possible. And yet the land which is unsuitable for agriculture, uh, probably return it back to nature 
so that it can become a solution to climate change as well and water resources. So by producing more from less, saving the land and protecting the existing natural vegetation is a globally very, very high priority. And I think from this point of view, I would like to make a plea. Uh, I, my favorite uh, Sanskrit phrase is Vasudeva Kutambakam, world is one family. And uh, this one uh, common uh, global family, if we were to consider planet Earth as our home that we should protect, uh, cherish and restore and use it prudently for the future generation, uh, that will be great. And at the same time, I like a plea, if world is one family, uh, let's not fight with one another. Let's bring that fight war to end everywhere. We should, as a civilized um, species, uh, not kill one another. That, that must stop. Peace is very important. Peace and soil health go together. When there's a war, the casualties, soil and people, and they both need to be rehabilitated. They both need to be restored. And it may take decades to do that. So my plea would be for peace everywhere. What a message. Um, yeah, quite speechless at the way that you answer these questions. Um, you really have such an engagement with uh, so many parts of the dialogue, uh, bring this spiritual into the soil, into um, the way that the world interacts with one another. It's so eloquent and beautiful. And I think it dovetails perfectly into, unfortunately, our last question for the day. Um, but we've heard in this conversation and the resources are all there online, just the extraordinarily, the extraordinarily, extraordinary life you've led and the extraordinary contributions that you've made already to this planet. Um, what legacy do you want to leave? I would like to indicate that uh, we live in harmony with nature. Uh, human are part of nature and uh, we live in symbiosis with nature. And I think that symbiosis where we respect nature uh, is very uh, important thing to, to follow. Uh, one other part in the same connection, people are mirror image of the land they live on. When people are miserable, uh, suffering, uh, desperate, they pass their miseries to the land. And unfortunately, the land reciprocates. And this vicious cycle has to be broken through symbiosis, living with nature. And nature's one more important, most important gradient is the soil. The top soil, about a 50 centimeter deep of the world, on which all life depends. So my request, my plea, my recommendation would be, let's protect it, let's restore it, let's cherish it, and live in symbiosis with nature. Well, Dr. Law, thank you so much for those concluding words to such a beautiful conversation in which I've learned so much and I've also felt so much. 
Um, thank you so much for your time. Um, this was such a privilege. Thank you for all of the work that you've uh, contributed. Thank you for all of the lives that you've changed. And um, it's my hope, it's my plea that your work and your passion and your mission is carried forward by others as well. Um, so thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for everyone who listened. And we will see you next time on GLF Live. Next up on GLF Live, we'll be taking a look inside the dark, murky world of fast fashion. Stay tuned for that in two weeks' time on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and countless other podcast platforms. That's it for today. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.